There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Secure the Insecure with Johnny Seafoot is sponsored by Jennings and Co-Financial Planning. Helping to make sense of money. Hello, you're listening to Security Insecure, the podcast for I say it's okay to not be okay. I'm Johnny Seifert, and every week I'm joined by one very special guest. This week, I am so delighted to say one of my favourite authors is joining me. Every year, I get that email to say there's a new book coming out in three months' time. Do I want a copy of it? I'm like, yes, give me that copy right now. And then I binge read it. And then the book comes out three months later and everyone is then talking about it. So then I start it again. And it's that cycle of just being immersed in a story. And someone who does that so beautifully and elegantly is Jane Fallon, who joins me this week. Hello, Jane. Hello. We're going to obviously promote Queen Bee, which is your book, which is out now for everyone to buy. But I want to go back to where it all begun for you, because your parents worked in a newsagent. And I found this fascinating because a newsagent setup has got people who come in to get their newspaper in the morning, businessmen. Then you've got people who come in to do their food shop. Then you've got people who have kids who want to get some sweets and chocolates. Then you've got the school kids. You must have met so many types of people growing up there. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And also because they both worked there and we lived above it, I used to spend all my time in the shop really when I was young, um, just so they could keep an eye on me. So yeah, it was a it was a funny way to grow up really. We didn't have the food bit, though we weren't quite that sophisticated, but we did have the ice creams, which was very exciting. Oh. So did you see these regular people coming in and that almost became characters in your mind that you started to guess what they did for a living, who they'd be hanging out with, that they'd sometimes bring their friend along as well that they didn't normally have. Yeah, I suppose that's true, actually. It was like a little uh, world of its own, funny enough. And then there were also the people, there were also the shoplifters, that every now and again someone would come in and then suddenly my dad would go flying down the road after someone or other who had an annual stuck up their jumper. Um, so we used to look out for them as well. Um, it was a very, very small town, so everyone knew everyone anyway. And you were at the centre of it, basically. You were the, the equivalent of the Minute Martin EastEnders or of Rita's Cabin at the end of Coronation Street. You were at the hub of where it all happened. 
We were. We were right on the high street. And actually, when I was a teenager and they gave the shop up and we moved to a house, and I found that really odd, the idea that, you know, there weren't just people outside all the time slightly freaked me out. Did you ever have friends that would come through the newsagent to go up to your flat with you? Yeah, that was the main way in. We did have a, another entrance, but no one ever used it. So, yeah, as long as it was open, they would always come and they were always fascinated and, you know, they wanted to have a little poke around. And the one thing, obviously, you're a child, the one thing everyone says is, do you get to eat the sweets? Um, and the sad answer was no. Why is that? Uh, well, I think they thought if we they said we could, then we just would. Uh, so we were allowed one to choose one bar of chocolate every Sunday. And obviously there was a period, I think when I was about, eight or nine, I suddenly thought, hold on a minute, <laughs> three o'clock in the morning, I can just go downstairs and help myself. Um, so I did that for a little while. And very stupidly, I hid it all under my pillow. And obviously, my mum found it when she made my bed. And so then they got a lock on the door. And that never happened again. This is also why you probably moved house, because you had got so used to this new way of life that if it was 3am and you were 18 years old, that alcohol, which they had downstairs, there'd be none left. Well, yeah, that's true. Although, to be fair, I was always awake. I never slept when I was a child and a teenager. It was really weird. And uh, I would stay awake all night and wander around the house. And then I, because they both got up at 4.30 to start work and I would wait for them to get up. And once they got up, I'd go to sleep. I was very scared of the dark. Very, very, very scared of the dark. I used to think that someone might come into the shop and come upstairs. But also I come from a family of really bad sleepers. So I think it was in my genes anyway, but I think probably the shop exacerbated it because I used to just think, oh my goodness, what, there's a burglar? And I mean, they'd have had to, there were seven of us, they'd have had to have got past a lot of people and it never happened. And creatively, were you always thinking that point, right, these are stories, I'm, I'm building these pictures in my head, or did that come a lot later on for you? I think not consciously. I did used to write all the time. I started writing when I was very small and all I ever liked to do really apart from gymnastics was read and write um so I did start stories but I but I never felt like that was a viable option you know a career option and I don't think I really consciously thought I'm surrounded by all these interesting people and to be honest when I was a kid the books I used to write were all about animals absolutely without fail it was always about you know a pig who went to the shops or I don't know a cow who got married or something um, and then you ended up at EastEnders and I'd been a big fan of the show and I'd and I'd been sort of gradually getting into TV and I'd had a couple of jobs as a script editor already and so when I heard that a job was coming up there I just jumped at the chance really because it was something that I'd always watched and always loved and it's such incredible experience because you know just the volume of what you're having to produce and keep up the sort of standard of it really kind of rings the best out of you. My era was the whole Phil Grant Sharon Love Triangle era and then David Wicks and Bianca. Do you remember that when Bianca's dad first came back? So the, the introduction of the Jackson family, all of that stuff. It was a pretty good era, I think. Obviously it wasn't quite the absolute classic Angie and Den. They'd gone by the time I got there, but it was it was pretty uh, iconic era specifically working on EastEnders made me think about cliffhangers because obviously working on a soap you're always thinking what's the big moment at the end and I find myself doing that with chapter ends I'm always thinking how can I make sure that they want to read another chapter you're very good at that especially with the chapter endings and your books always kind of have that that I think it was faking friends you kind of have one part and then you change again and the complete mood changes and suddenly you're taking sides between friends about you know, who's right and who's wrong. And then you flip it again and then again and again. You're amazing yeah. at doing that. And do you think oh, thank you. that if you hadn't worked on a soap, you'd have been able to get to that level? 
Uh, it's hard to know, but like I say, it definitely, definitely helped, I think, because I was there for two and a half years, and I think, uh, you know, you're forced to also, you're forced to look at the same characters for two and a half years and think of what you can do with them and think of how they can interact with other people, and that's a really good skill, I think, because you've got to really dive into those people as deeply as you can and, you know, find whatever you can in there. What I found was that with my insomnia, a really good thing that I used to do is think storylines for whatever I was working on. I used to find that quite comforting, that I would just try and work out storylines. So I have got a head full of nonsense of storylines. Well, you've done nine books and more or less you release one a year. So you're, you've got to, do you find that you have to keep that momentum up that, you know, as soon as one person puts that book down, they're waiting for the next Jane Fallon book. I know I am. And I'm like, right, when's it out? When's it out? And oh. you want it to be kind of as good as the last, but even better. That is, do you find that pressurising at all? Or do you just, just write? It is a bit of a pressure, and I think you have to put that to one side. It certainly was pressure at the beginning, I think. Now I think I've got more confident in that I know that I can that it'll work and that I know what I'm doing. Um, and the one a year is tough, but I think it really works. I think, And I remember, actually, from when I was young, I, I worked in a bookshop when I was a teenager, and I was obsessed with Faye Weldon, and I remember she used to release once a year, and I literally used to wait for that month of the year. She did for maybe four or five books, I think. Um, and I think it really ha- helps build loyalty from your readers. I think if people know there's not going to be an endless gap, you know, before the next one. And also it's where you read those books because your books all, well, look, obviously not this year, but most of the time your books come out in the summer where you can take your book on holiday and it's the perfect holiday read. Do you vision where that person that's reading your book is going to be? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I would hope they could read them anyway, but I think they are particularly good for holidays. I think you're right. Um, no, I try not to second-guess the reader too much at all, actually, because as soon as you start thinking about exactly who they are or what they might like or where they might want to read it, it, it sort of clouds your thought process. I tend to write my first draft just absolutely in a bubble. I have complete tunnel vision, and I just write what I think works, and then I give it to my editor, and then I try and look at it from the outside. But for me, anyway, personally, it's really important just to focus on what I'm writing and not really think about how it will be received. But you living and breathing those characters that they mean everything to you that, you know, if anything, you know, that you basically know these characters inside out, they're like almost human beings for you that you've got so much care for them that when that year is up and you release that book that you're almost saying goodbye to some friends that you've had for the past year. Yeah. And that can be really hard actually. And stupidly, I don't know why I didn't start off writing a series of books with the same characters because it would make life so much easier. Um, Because you do, you, you, you really grow to sort of love them, even the awful ones, like Stella in Queen Bee, who is just awful. But I really miss her now. I finished writing about her. And then you've got to come up with a whole new load of characters that, you know, hopefully feel real and have their own personalities. And, yeah, you do. You get And you get to know them really well. You get to know how they'll react in certain situations and, you know, what kind of thing they might say. I probably spend more time with them than I do with almost anyone. <laughs> Well, you brought in Queen Bee. Stella is one of those characters that has got so many layers to her. There's there's a, a heart of, you know, stone, but you can chisel away and there is some blood at the bottom of that stone. She has got a heart very deep, deep, deep down. Yeah, she definitely has. And I think that I always think that no one is 100% good or 100% bad. I think everyone has aspects of both, you know, everyone's somewhere in the middle. And I think the thing with Stella is her behaviour is dreadful. But actually, when you do chip away, she hasn't had the best life. You know, a lot of her dreadfulness is out, is defensive. Um, 
you know, she's insecure, she's defensive, all of those things. And I think hopefully you do start to warm to her towards the end. Oh, I definitely did. But for those who haven't started reading yet, what is Queen Bee about? Uh, So Queen Bee is about Laura, who is getting a divorce and she needs to find somewhere to live very quickly um, because the house she was buying falls through. And she ends up renting a tiny little studio, which is effectively the staff quarters, really, in a very, very, very smart mansion in a private close of very smart mansions. Um, And she quickly finds herself pitted against Stella, who is the self-appointed Queen Bee of the Close, and he takes against her when she thinks that Laura has designs on her fiancé, which she absolutely doesn't. Um, And then Laura finds out something about Stella's fiancé, and she has to decide, do I just watch what happens? Do I watch, you know, her life get torn apart, or do I actually reach out to this awful woman and try and help her? And then you go through a series of twists and turns, which, again, as you do in all your books, you're suddenly on Stella's side, and then you flip on Stella, and then you're being horrible against her. When you're making these characters, do you realise what you're doing to people's emotions when you're making them, you know, <laughs> choose between friends? Because Laura was my friend. And then I was like, well, hold on. I don't like Stella. I'm team Laura. And then I was like, oh, actually, it's Stella's husband who's to blame, not Stella. <laughs> That's great to hear that, though, because what you want to do is provoke some kind of emotional reaction in the reader, whatever it is. I think um, so, you did yeah. that perfectly. You oh, really you. did that. But again, I think it again, although you only had two and a half years at EastEnders, I think it set you up and what makes you stand out from all other authors of your genre is the way that you can flip between because a lot of authors are now getting into this trend of doing a chapter per a character. So, for example, mm-hmm. you'd have Laura's perspective, then you'd go to Stella's perspective and backwards mm-hmm. and forwards where you keep that continuous storyline arc coming along as it is a narrative. Yeah, I, exactly. And, um, you know, I think there's absolute merit in both. I think that style, I'd obviously I don't want to do that every time, but that style does kind of work for me. I, really, I do like undercutting what you've just seen before, you know, pulling out the rug from underneath. I've always tried to think of them as like, almost like thrillers without a crime. So you want to keep people guessing and, you know, keep the twists and turns coming. When you are in your home writing, your husband is Ricky Gervais, for those who don't know. He's made Afterlife the most incredible programme in recent years. You're writing books, which are the most incredible books in years. What is it like in your house when you've got all that writing and creativity coming along? Did you help out on Afterlife and does he help out on your books? Uh, Well, uh, he doesn't read my books. He doesn't read books. I know. He doesn't read books. He's only ever read one novel in his life. So so he actually hasn't read any of them. So sometimes if I'm stuck somewhere, I'll try and say, oh, I'm really stuck. But then you have to explain the whole plot of the whole book. So that doesn't really work. Whereas he's much more open about his work. So he'll quite often show me stuff and say, you know, what do you think of this? Or, and I always, will always read the early drafts and everything. He's very good at being very collaborative. I'm much more defensive about my work, I think, anyway. So in a way, maybe I'm quite glad that he's not reading my early drafts and giving me notes. I'd probably just get cross. And were you critical of anything to do with Afterlife? that you've seen uh no i don't think i'm critical i mean i will always say oh i'm not sure about this bit or you know this bit because this is script history me i can't help myself if someone shows me something i have to say what i think of it so yeah i'll tell him honestly what i think and he's very good at hearing it and not saying how dare you what you're talking about and then you know he'll make up his own mind what he does with it because he's very clear about what he wants and how he wants it to be so you've kept these projects very separate, but I want to know, when are you going to become the next Richard and Judy but of writing? <laughs> when are you going to work on something together, like bringing one of your books? Like I can imagine Queen Bee, I, I said this to you, I've also said this to you for months, Queen Bee, effectively, is what you'd see on Desperate Housewives very easily. When are you and Ricky going to join up together and make Queen Bee or one of your other books 
into an actual drama for Netflix? No, I'm going to do it without him. Because if I do it with him, we're both such control freaks about work, it would just be a disaster. We'd just be arguing about it all the time. So no, I'm going to do it without him. And I am trying. I do all the time. They get options. They've all been optioned at one point or another and nothing ends up happening. But hopefully it'll happen. But I think us working together is not, that's not the way to go. Well, I think your book, Tell Me a Secret, is the one that stands out for me that I think could really be a TV show. Is it that you're going to the wrong channels or it just doesn't happen because it's right book, wrong time type thing? Yeah, I don't know, really. I think people are always nervous, or certainly nervous at the moment, about anything that isn't maybe crime or thriller. It's easier to hook an audience in with crime or thriller. They're kind of nervous about relationship series. Uh, yeah, I think you just have to wait for the right person to be at the right channel. Various, All different channels have optioned them at different times. It would definitely happen one day. And also, there's no reason why they wouldn't go back and you couldn't go back and do an earlier book. They don't have to do the one that's just come out. So I'm constantly having meetings and talking about them and oh i don't know it'll happen one day so you working on next year's big book the new book of 2021 i am yeah i'm about thirty-five thousand words into the first draft which is about a third of the way in probably and it's going fine i i'm not sure it's odd this because this queen bee was originally meant to come out in april so it's been this strange sort of hiatus of waiting to see what will happen and when it would actually come out because obviously way back at the beginning of lockdown they couldn't get the books from the warehouses and all that kind of thing so everything got delayed um so that i found that has messed with my head slightly with writing the next one but now i'm knuckling down and it will be out next year definitely are you able to differentiate between the two then because you're obviously at the moment on the publicity trail for this book you need to remember who laura is you need to remember who stella <laughs> yeah. is etc but then also yeah. You've said goodbye to them in your head and you've made these new friends for the next book. How easy is it to differentiate between the two books for you? It's not. It's actually really confusing. And so what I tend to do is around publication is I'll take a couple of weeks off from writing the next one because you can't, you're right, you can't think straight. And I'd start a conversation with you and I'd start talking about a character and you'd say, who's that? And I'd suddenly realise it was in the book I was writing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I'm having a couple of weeks. And also I, I tend around publication to have quite a lot of other little things to write, Q&As and things for you know, did papers and websites and stuff like that. So I just, I put the book aside, which is actually quite healthy to put it aside for a few weeks anyway, I think. Do you end up rewriting that then? So do you end up going back to those words that you have written and going, actually, I've taken a step away, I've got a new pair of eyes looking at it now and actually it doesn't work as I originally planned it to go? Yeah, probably. There's bound to be an element of that. I mean, even just because obviously it bubbles away in the back of your mind, even when you put it aside. And even already there are things where I think, oh no, I should have this would have been a better way to go. So yeah, I will. When I go back, I'll I'll have a bit of a rethink. I tend to not rewrite too much as I go through the first draft. I just start writing from where I was, but on an entirely different tangent. And then when I get to the end, before I deliver it to anyone, then I go back and rewrite the whole thing. Fallon Queen Bee out to buy in all good bookshops now and I thought it would just be a nice little bit of change we had a really uh heavy episode last week of Denise Welsh talking about the pressure and I absolutely loved that episode it was one of my favorite episodes to do and it helped a lot of you and I know it helped a lot of you because I've had a really nice messages and as I said to you it's a bible it's a podcast that you can go back to whenever you need to listen to it it's always going to be there for you to just go right I just need a bit of advice about someone who I know is depressed or I feel a little bit depressed what do I do and then you can go back and listen to that episode again so I thought this week what would be quite nice is to do a little bit different do an interview with one of my favorite authors look at some insecurities about writing and just start thinking about the summer 
because Queen Bee was supposed to be the perfect summer read for you and therefore you should have been sitting at the swimming pool being able to read it or in my case walking up and down the infinity pool reading it because that's what I like to do when I read a book um that Jane Fallon is honestly one of the best authors in the world she's got nine books tell me a secret faking friends are two of my favorite books of all time so please do check her out and that's it for me I will be back next week same time same place and whatnot I know it's part of your routines now so make sure you get me on for your walk um the only one thing I do want to say before I leave you is can you help me out because I'm not getting any comments on the review bit on iTunes and I really do need them so go onto iTunes quickly go down and then leave a review and put five stars it's really important you help me out with this because we need to make this podcast more successful. We need to say it's okay to not be okay. And it's just important that we keep that conversation going. I've been Johnny Seifert. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. Secure the Insecure with Johnny Seifert is sponsored by Jennings and Co-Financial Planning, helping to make sense of money. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.